0: How's that for a slice of fried gold?
1: We're well, here for I guess everyone's a type one good scare
2: huh? of your favorite cult films. I, the pink, and really, the stink. The pink and the stink. The pink and the stink.
0: Two in just, the pink, no. Just Only in. one in the stink. Cinema Shocker. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never see us coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these ads. These ad reads are going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right um well well hello and well are we recording (laughs) recording? oh Um, man i
2: should pay attention to that that the corner of the screen that says that
0: yeah but i'm I'm real jacked up because you didn't put the uh the intro thing you had from the last one on Mm -hmm. this one and so i didn't notice that until right now um you didn't have it memorized yet? No, I didn't have it minor- min- mineralized. Mineralized. <laughs> mineralized.
2: Do we need to start this over, Gary? Well, you hello okay? and
0: welcome to Cinema Shock. It's a podcast dedicated to the history and evolution of cult and genre movies. I'm Gary Horn.
2: I'm Justin Bishop, and we are joined once again this week, we are joined by a very special guest, writer, comedian, and teen vampire expert todd
0: a davis
3: it's a podcast you guys welcome it's a podcast
0: oh you want me here for the sex don't you (laughs) uh
3: yeah yeah i i i'm definitely i'm definitely the vampire expert here oh
2: man what an awkward line what an awkward way to propose uh sex with a person (laughs) By saying, you want me here for the sex. The the, the sexy stuff. You you want me here for the sexy stuff. The sexy stuff, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he's no no Edward Cullen. Let's just say that. So, hey. 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 Talking about... about This is part two of our George Romero, Tom Savini series. It's going to last till thanksgiving or so probably i'm not joking i'm not joking these guys did a lot of movies together so we are we are going through basically every film that george romero and tom savini worked on together which is a lot i mean we were so here's how this started when we were talking about starting this podcast we're like you know i i said i really want to do some tom savini movies in in october for halloween you know we want to do some horror movies for halloween and they're like, well, we can't talk about Tom Savini without talking about Dawn of the Dead. If you're going to talk about Dawn of the Dead, you just got to talk about all of George Romero's zombie movies, right? Right. Yeah. So we're like, okay, we'll do the zombie movies first. That'll be kind of an introduction. Then we'll go into the Tom Savini. But then we're just like, you know, what the hell? Let's merge the two ideas and let's do every movie that George Romero and Tom Savini worked on together. It's ba- So that's why, That's honestly, that's an explanation why, This series is going on for as long as it's going to go on. It's because we basically took two ideas, mashed them together, like chocolate and peanut butter. Mm -hmm. Tom Savini's the peanut butter, George A. the chocolate, and this podcast is your Reese's cup. I don't know where I'm going. This is going great. You're you're, you're, on a roll. (laughs) I was was totally on.
3: I was totally on board with
2: it. So last week we talked about Night of the Living Dead. Uh, So. We we went through a little bit of Romero's history post Night of the Living Dead. We talked a little bit about the movies that he did immediately after that, which were not necessarily traditional horror films, nor were they very successful or as well received by critics as Night of the Living Dead, which of course was a major, not only success, but a major piece of the zeitgeist at the time. It was a huge hit. So his next three films, After Night of the Living Dead, were 1971's There's Always Vanilla, 1972's Jack's Wife slash Hungry Wives* slash Season of the Witch, depending on where you're reading about it. It was called Season of the Witch later because they wanted to like shoehorn uh, that Donovan song into the soundtrack. So they just renamed the movie after it. And then in 1973, he did The Crazies. Now of those, only The Crazies has really gone on to have any kind of major cult following. Most people who watch there's always vanilla or season of the witch are really only watching it because they're Romero completist, but the crazies, uh, although it was not terribly successful at the time has gone on to have, you know, people, people know the crazies and they enjoy it. And it has, it has a following. And I mean, hell, it even had a, a very well received from what I remember remake back in 2010, uh, which is actually a pretty, pretty solid movie. If you haven't seen it.
3: Yeah. I think, uh, I, saw, I think uh, we saw it in the theaters.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, Brett Breck, Breck Eisner, I think, directed it. But uh, I remember it being pretty good. It's got Timothy Oliphant, who we all love in it. Anyway, this is not a podcast about the crazies. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> although it, it was mostly ignored upon release, the original crazies did leave to a lucrative new partnership for George Romero. So while he was in New York, he was promoting that film. And he did an interview with a writer who, this guy who was writing for a filmmaker's magazine named Richard Rubenstein. And Rubenstein, he, he was writing, but he really wanted to like produce actual films. So him and Romero became friends. And then at one point, Rubenstein just, he just said to Romero, he said, hey, let's take a little breather. Romero's had four movies in a row that were all very difficult. Night of the Living Dead, very difficult because it was just a seven month exhaustive shoot. But then the other ones were more difficult really in their release. They had, you know, he, they, he wasn't happy with the experience. So he was getting a little burned out. Yeah, so, I, was,
0: I was watching the, sorry to jump in there, but I was, the, the commentary track for the Dawn of the Dead, Richard Rubenstein tells a story about Romero was under serious dead um during this time like uh, uh, he had these all these back-to-back failures in movies that yeah i think the latent
2: image was in in pretty dire straits financially
0: yeah um and rubenstein was like actually trying to give romero advice to like declare bankruptcy and start over and romero refused because he felt like it was inappropriate to back out on the people that had loaned him money and helped him out um and investments and that sort of thing. And and Rubenstein had a lot of respect for that, that Romero was just like so adamant about not walking out on those pe- people. So he partnered up with him so that he could help him get out of debt. Now, this was their first film together, obviously, but, you know, Dawn of the Dead is really going to be the one. We'll talk about more on that. But Yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, this wasn't their first uh this wasn't their first collaboration, though. So what they did to take that breather from feature filmmaking is the two of them spent the next three years working in television. Uh, they did a lot of documentaries, a lot of sports documentaries, including a pre-murderer O.J. Simpson documentary called O.J. Simpson Juice on the Loose, uh, which is the Cardi B's next single.
0: So ended up sticking with... <laughs> I was about to say still sticking with uh, horror, but... <laughs> just, <laughs> Uh, Either way. People make fun of poor Ben Shapiro, but a bucket and a mop is a lot, is a lot of juice on the loose. I'm just saying.
2: (laughs) Uh, So working in this area of the business helped him to learn the ins and outs of real filmmaking as opposed to like the the kind of guerrilla independent stuff he'd been doing, what he called trunk of the car garage filmmaking in Pittsburgh. So while these projects, you know, doing documentaries and things like that, sports Shows these kind of seem like mundane, boring things for a guy of Romero's talents to be doing, but they did sort of serve as cinematic stretch exercises for him. Excuse C- me,
0: cinematic Kegels. Yes, somewhat. okay, thank <laughs> you, Gary.
2: We're making a lot of vagina jokes in the first five minutes of this episode.
0: <laughs> I apologize.
2: Sorry. So that, but this eventually led to Romero and Rubenstein forming the Laurel Group, and they had plans for several. Feature films when they uh, when they put this group together, and the first of those features was his 1978 "Is He or Isn't He a Vampire" movie, which is the movie we're talking about today. Martin.
1: My name is Martin. Martin. I'm 84 years old. Martin. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. I'd like to be normal. I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood. Martin it's not easy living the way i do i have to be careful all the time But i'm pretty good at it i think as i get older i get better i haven't been caught yet martin another kind of terror see people don't understand what's wrong they think that i'm a monster they think i'm a vampire People don't realize that those things I see in the movies are not real. I don't have a whole lot of women. It's nice to watch them. I watch them a lot, all the time. I have to, to be sure that nothing goes wrong. I follow them. I plan. I'm very careful. I have needles now. I can use them. I can put them to sleep. And it doesn't hurt.
0: Martin, another kind of terror.
1: I would like to be like everyone else. I have to do things that I don't necessarily like to do. But I want to stay alive. I do need blood.
0: From the director of Night of the Living Dead. Martin, another
1: kind of
2: terror. All right, so
0: Oh my god, Gary. <laughs> that's more you gotta edit out. No, oh, I'm gonna leave that in. That's that's Martin. W Z U P was the was the what ah!
2: I thought we got that joke out of our system L-Gina. at the end inter- of Gina. I thought we were done with that joke.
0: No. How could you be?
2: <laughs> so before we continue, I would like to credit my sources on this. Uh, the first one is a book called Savini, the biography. By Tom Savini, which would actually make it Savini the autobiography, but that's not the name of it. Really yeah, good. <laughs> it came out last year. It's a fairly recent book. Lots of great color pictures from his personal collection. Uh, it goes through his whole career. It's really cool. Uh, plus, a book it's an ebook called Martin by a writer named Jez Winship, which is basically this like hundred page plus analysis of the movie. But it's got a lot of really you know interesting behind the scenes information as well. So that that was a really good source. As well, based on a script by Romero himself, Martin kind of sprang from the idea that the like literary monsters, you know, the classics, the Frankenstein's, the Invisible Man; these were extensions of our own shattered psyches. Uh, in a 1981 interview with the
0: Twilight Zone magazine, this is what Romero said: "Martin is designed to show that all the supernatural monsters that are part of the literary tradition are, in essence." Expert, what what the fuck is that word? (laughs) Expergations? expurgations, expurgations. I've literally never heard that word in my entire life. So sorry, I'm the asshole, I guess. Romero's smarter than you, Gary. (laughs) Expurgations of ourselves. They're beasts we've created in order to exercise the monster from within us. I tried to show in Martin that you can't just slice off this evil part of ourselves and throw it away. It's a permanent part of us, and we better try to understand it. Is that great? So it's like the mummy is really just a bandaged up dude. And uh, the wolfman, somebody who's extra hairy and Frankenstein, he's, uh, well, figure it out. But the the thing is, is that, that he's I just... What? he's
2: not being he's not being literal
0: no I think that's I think he is <laughs> so yeah. he he had the idea for Martin this is a great time was, to talk about our sponsor manscape.com <laughs> you don't want to be a wolf man I'm sorry go ahead I, I keep cutting you off buddy
2: you do Gary that's that's a bad you're a bad co-host
0: I'm excited about today I'm just excited <laughs> well, I'm glad, about this whole thing
2: I'm glad I'm glad you're excited Gary so <laughs> Romero had the idea for Martin while he was waiting on a deal to come through for his next Living Dead film. They were actually already trying to get Dawn of the Dead made. Uh which was and that one was going to be shot on a much bigger budget than anything he'd done before, but in the meantime, like while he was waiting on that funding to come through, he raised the funds for this little vampire movie idea he had. Um which is about $250,000, which is still higher than his previous four films, but that number is questionable. Uh, the $250,000. So Rubenstein would layer in interviews, he would say that the re- he reported the budget as two hundred and fifty grand, but the actual budget was only about a hundred grand. He didn't want anyone to think that they could just commission a film for a hundred grand and get it made. So he inflated, inflated the number to what he considered a more reasonable amount for an independent film to be made.
0: You know uh, what's which is oh, ahead, weird, but you know no, what I was gonna say is it's interesting because like I I, I didn't realize this until um <clears throat> I was watching uh the Joe Bob did a, a marathon here recently or a double feature and it was uh hatchet was one of the movies and they had Adam Green on there and Joe Bob actually made this joke in the, the film right before. And then Adam Green like confirmed it. it was like, whatever you see in like IMDB as the budget of a movie, he was like, it is always 50% of that. He, he said that that's, that's generally the case. They always it's like now like a common occurrence to like just build on whatever the budget says so it just sounds better or something but you would think that they would want it to sound lower
2: to make it sound like their movie made more money or something right i mean you would think
0: so but yeah like um they they were talking to him about hatchet and uh no it wasn't hatchet it was the victor crowley movie and um so they said the budget on Hatchet was like 165000 And Adam Green was like sitting there and he's like, what? What the hell? He was like, you know, I, I'm not allowed to discuss the budget. But it was like, he just like mouthed like like 50000 it looked like. But he said, yeah, yeah, that's 100% true. They always say like IMDb seems to always at least double the amount that a movie costs.
3: Oh, huh, interesting. Wonder, I wonder if that's production and marketing maybe? yeah. I don't
0: know, I don't know. So,
2: Romero he had this idea in his head for a while—the the idea for Martin. But in his original script for this, Martin was an older and and very much a real vampire. Uh, it, it was very blatant that he was he was a real vampire, just you know an old you know ancient vampire trying to get along in the modern world. But he changed that when he cast John Amplus in the role. This is John Amplis' first feature film role. And he Romero essentially rewrote the role for Amplis after he saw him perform in a local play there in Pittsburgh.
0: Uh, Supposedly, like it was originally like a short he had done for his friend, Ray Lane, um, who was another one of their college buddies, and it was for his reel. And the whole story was based around um, the 1962 movie, David and Lisa. And uh, that was like kind of the idea for the story and he says you can still watch it and see that that's essentially what this story sort of is but uh but yeah then they decided to expand it into a feature and he even got into his he called it the dreaded narration to like try to extend it out into like a full feature length
2: yeah the the original version of this movie had narration and i think the original cut was like almost 3 hours long yeah yeah which is when, when they first crazy. cut this which is, oddly it's, enough this one feels
0: that long God, oh
2: damn it. no <laughs> oh no we're yeah oh no i knew todd wasn't gonna like this movie gary but <laughs> I, I had higher hopes for you so martin was filmed on 16 millimeter uh in the pittsburgh suburb of braddock pennsylvania Uh, This was the summer of 1976, very small crew. And when I say small, I mean like actors are having to carry the lighting rigs around the studio, around the set, which the set was like a house of another local filmmaker that they let him borrow. And the the dude's grandmother was like there and making meals for the whole crew and everything. Like a very, very much a small independent family affair. I mean, this was as independent a film as George Romero had made even on his previous four films. And he cast a lot of locals in roles in this as well. A lot of family members, friends. He wrote, for instance, he wrote the the role of Christine for uh, Christine Forrest, who he was in love with, who by the time they were filming, he was dating. She plays Martin's cousin in the film. And they would later be married for, for years and years. But they also like did this sort of guerrilla filmmaking thing on, on this movie where they... They were probably shooting without a permit. They were shooting all around, trying to capture the local color in Braddock, uh, from parades to burnout churches to just, like, drunk people walking around who were not necessarily part of the production. And a lot of these locations, well, all of these locations, were shot by cinematographer Michael Gornick. And this was the first time that Romero had relented camera duties to somebody else. Uh, Gornick had been working with the latent Image since the early 70s, and he was kind of the ideal choice to shoot Martin because he grew up in the area. His, fa- his family, he was from Pittsburgh. His parents actually were from Braddock. So he grew up around this and saw firsthand the town's s- sort of descent into the decay that we see in the film. Now, Romero did have one major clash on, on, on the set with Rubenstein. See, Romero wanted to shoot the film in black and white. They ended up shooting it in color. Uh, R- Rubinstein refused to let him shoot it in black and white, but Romero still sort of had the intention of releasing it in black and white, but would shoot it on color for marketing purposes. Uh, his plan was to shoot it in color and then uh, convert it to black and white for the final film. Uh, but in the final cut, of course, only Martin's fantasy dream sequences are in black and white.
3: Has Romero commented on why he thought it would have been better in black and white? I think he was just trying to evoke Those
2: classic horror movies, honestly.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, We talked about
2: last week that Black and White was partially an aesthetic choice on Night of the Living Dead as well, in in addition to budgetary.
0: Yeah, Mm. Romero's very, like, I mean, he's so down to earth with uh, what he does, and he's so almost humble to a fault, like, on, like, just passing off stuff. Like, I I saw some interviews with, like, one with, like, Guillermo del Toro, like, actually interviewing him and stuff like that, and, um, and, and, Guillermo del Toro is trying to get him to like admit to like the the Pittsburgh setting for a lot of the movies is like well you bring like you bring cinema verite to horror like with what you do and um you know like you you start from the ground and build up as far as the way your horror stuff and uh, setting it in Pittsburgh makes it believable and they talk about like Hitchcock Hitchcock had a quote called uh, or that said if it happens anywhere it happens nowhere so he's like this makes it like more special and Romero's like yeah but. We just kind of shoot with what we got yeah he's very he's
2: very like self-defacing uh romero's very modest i guess you could say like in his commentaries and everything he also talks about like when you know people talk about little moments in the film in this film but in other films where uh it just seems like really great choices like he's just like man i just shot a shit ton of footage and put it all together for what works like you know he, he doesn't and he does shoot a lot of footage like purposely because Romero is a hell of an editor and so what he likes to do is just shoot a lot of stuff and then he has a lot of choices for what to use in the final film but saying that you know try to, to say that as if it's like not a big deal like you're still the one making the choices for what to put in the film, what shots to use. Right. uh, Which is, which is a talent that a lot of people do not have.
0: So when I saw him talk about the black and white thing, the reason I thought of that is like, he was just kind of like, yeah, I just always saw it in black and white. Like that's the way I saw it. And then obviously the producers didn't want that. And it was a battle like I started to have, but then I was just kind of like, you know, whatever. And, uh, and, and I think that was actually in the, the interview with Guillermo del Toro because del Toro is kind of asking, he's like, you know, Romero's saying like, see you, you're probably in a position that you get to fight it. It's like, you get to fight back with him. And, and del Toro's like, well, to the extent that like, there's the money for it or something, they're having that discussion. And Romero's like, yeah, he's like, I still had nothing, like no power on anything and they were like no color is the way to go and I was I just had to go with it he said now he looks at it and feels like color was the right way to go he did say that he said he felt like that it is better that it's in color but he said just at the time he just had always pictured it that way and it didn't work out (laughs) he he told a story It was like but, you know, he's like, I, I didn't have any authority. He's like, later on, we're going to go down to the road to Monkey Shines. And he's like, I was making that. And I had a whole different ending planned out for that. And the producer didn't like it. And then I was like, well, F it. I'm going to make my own ending for Monkey Shines. And the producer was like, well, that's cool. You go ahead and make your own ending for Monkey Shines. And this movie will make its premiere in flight somewhere above Australia or something. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow. just> <laughs> Oh, perfect. So, well, I I think, honestly, I
2: agree that shooting it in color was probably the best choice simply because I think the juxtaposition of the color in black and white scenes works really well. And obviously yeah. you wouldn't have that if the whole thing was in black and white. So aside from that disagreement with Rubenstein, though, the shoot seemed to go like very smoothly. Everyone seemed to have a great time making this movie. Like I said, it was a very much a family affair. Like they were living in this, you know, old grandma's house in Braddock, Pennsylvania, you know, eating family style around a table. Everyone was friends with each other. Seemed very congenial, much more so than the set of his previous films, even Night of the Living Dead, which as we we talked about, was somewhat stressful at times. But there was one very significant thing that happened during the creation of this movie. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say that this is a decision this is an event that changed the face of the horror genre as we know it and that is that this was the first collaboration between George Romero and Tom Savini.
0: God bless him that Tom Savini. You did it again, Tom? Tom you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sex Machine. He said that's, he that's his name. This Sex is the machine. start of a beautiful friendship, and we're about to get into Tom Savini. So, you know, if you're listening to this somehow and you don't know who Tom Savini is, oh, so I feel you're for about you. to learn. You're about to learn. You're but about to learn. Another funny story I heard that I just throw in here is that Romero said Tom Savini would have been the only guy he ever worked with from this moment on, except for uh, later on Land of the Dead, uh, the the production company or the the yeah, the, the main company didn't want Savini on the picture because Savini didn't want him. They didn't want him because he, he he acts like this is literal, said Savini had no assets and they needed to have somebody they could sue if they needed to.
2: So that's why they went
0: to like <laughs> wow. Greg Nicotero started becoming his guy. <laughs> wow,
2: which is, we'll talk about Nicotero probably more next week, but Greg Nicotero owes his career to Tom Savini. Yeah, So that's the ironic part of that. So, Thomas Vincent Savini was born on November the 3rd, 1946, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's the youngest of six siblings. Uh, he's like 13 years younger than his next oldest sibling uh he was like the whoops accident you know uh todd you know about
0: this
3: yeah i'm a i'm an accident baby
0: <laughs> i don't think you get to knock out six and then keep saying whoops like well <laughs> no no the first five
3: first five
2: were intentional then it wait they 13 years later here comes baby tommy i'm just saying by <laughs> six you know how the fuck it
0: works yeah they were catholic though (laughs) okay so
2: it's a a catholic family so probably no contraceptives i mean his mother was older so maybe they just thought it wasn't going to happen at this point but uh yeah because his his because if you
3: use contraceptives guys we're all in the bible belt you know if you use contraceptives you go to hell that's true it says it in the bible yep
2: (laughs) i remember that from sunday school no birth Mm -hmm. control no, he, he was raised in a traditional Catholic Italian family. Uh, and he, what you would think would mean that he was like sheltered and not able to, because you, know, you, you hear this sometimes, like Wes Craven was uh, raised in like a Southern Baptist family or something, or, or you know, so maybe not Southern Baptist, but like a Baptist family and not allowed to see movies till so he was like an adult. But that wasn't the case with Savini. Savini became enamored by the movies at a pretty early age. And on Saturdays, you know, he lived in this little Italy neighborhood of Pittsburgh and there's a, you know, a little neighborhood theater and he would go down to watch horror movies uh, during the Saturday matinees. Nice. And then one of those Saturdays, he saw a movie that changed his life. It was a movie called Man of a Thousand Faces. Now, Man of a Thousand Faces is a uh, film that came out in 1957. It's about the life of silent film movie actor Lon Chaney. Uh, of course, the father of Lon Chaney Jr., who would go on to you know, play the Wolfman and several other significant horror roles in the uh, in the 1940s. Uh, in this movie, which is a, a biography, it is, uh, Lon Chaney played by James Cagney, famous gangster movie actor. Mm-hmm. Savini saw this movie and he was it blew his mind. He'd always loved monsters. He'd always loved monster movies, but he kind of saw them as like, these are real monsters. You know, he didn't quite, he was so young that he didn't quite understand the, the divide between reality and fantasy. You know, he, when he saw a monster on a screen, they were a monster. But when he saw this movie, it was his like first notion that these movies were being crafted by someone behind the scenes. Uh, that these monsters that had scared them for his entire life were the work of craftsmen. And of course, Lon Chaney was the grandfather of all of these craftsmen as far as makeup effects go. So if if you're not familiar with the career of Lon Chaney, first of all, you you should be. If you're a fan of horror movies, then the, the entire genre owes so much to Lon Chaney. He was a fixture in the early days of the horror genre. He started in silent horror films like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, The Phantom of the Opera in 1925, which was technically, I mean, if you're if you're tracing like the horror output of Universal, which included, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein, et cetera, The Phantom of the Opera is what started that. It was the first like true universal horror movie. Okay. And the most notable thing about Cheney was not his ability to play or was not, I should say, not only his ability to play these tortured, grotesque characters, but it was his ability to turn himself into them. Because Cheney became not known not only as a powerful and versatile character actor, but he became known as a, a, a well-regarded makeup artist as well. See, makeup effects in the early days of movies was, I mean, practically non-existent Uh, with the exception of fake beards and mustaches. That's about as far as they got uh, during Lon Chaney's day. This is before, you know, Frankenstein's monster became such an iconic thing in the time that Lon Chaney was making movies in the, in the twenties, makeup departments didn't even exist. Like the actors were responsible for putting their own makeup on. And that went, you know, that, that was kind of standard up until the mid 1920s. So, Cheney's ability to create these incredible looking prosthetics, not only create them, but put them on himself, uh, made him very highly sought after. He was a highly sought after commodity in horror films. And many of those characters that he created, especially those of Quasimodo and the Phantom, remain iconic to this day. Like if you think of Phantom of the Opera, a lot of times the image that is conjured up in your mind is, Lon Cheney's version, you know, with the upturned nose that looks kind of like a skull. Uh, London After Midnight, his, his uh, makeup from that, it's a lost film, but it's a very iconic image. Uh, for an image to be that iconic in a movie that nobody in, that's alive probably has seen is pretty amazing. So seeing this movie, when T- Tom Savini went to see this movie, it kind of flipped a switch in Savini's brain. He, he now understood where these monsters came from and he wanted to be the guy who made them so he starts learning from every resource he can he goes to the library picks up books about makeup effects uh he he eventually he doesn't have the money to go buy the stuff he finds out that there's a a store in downtown pittsburgh that sells you know theatrical makeup but downtown pittsburgh from where he lived at this time like may as well have been the moon like you know going downtown And having the money to buy this stuff was, he was a poor kid in a poor neighborhood. So he buys, he saves up enough change to buy a little shoe shine kit. And he starts shining shoes and saves up enough money to go to this store downtown and buy the the stuff that he needs to start creating makeup effects of his own. And so and he does it and he starts experimenting on himself first, like, you know, creating makeup effects on his own face. And then on some of his friends who were willing to participate, he would, you know, he'd be known as the guy who would run around with like scars on his face or his friends would come home to their parents and they'd have like a, a bloody like fucking wound in their head and their parents would freak out for a minute. And then they'd <laughs> be like, Oh, it's Savini. And then they weren't allowed to hang out with Savini anymore. You know, he was that kid. Nice. <laughs> uh, then eventually he discovered his other passion which was acting. So in high school, he was, he was very active in high school. He was on the wrestling team. He was in the band. He, uh, he was on the track team, but he was most involved in the theater in high school. And his high school theater put on uh, these productions, a lot of musicals, Guys and Dolls, Bye Bye Birdie, stuff like that. And all of the directors, set designers, and choreographers on these plays came from uh, Carnegie Mellon University where they were students. So, And if you remember from last week's episode, one notable graduate of Carnegie Mellon, which it was called Carnegie Tech at the time, was a budding filmmaker by the name, of course, George Romero. So one day, Savini finds out that this guy Romero, this local filmmaker, is coming to school to audition some students for a film that he's about to make. And Romero, Romero, of course, this is pre-Night of the Living Dead. Romero is an unknown you know, nobody knows who he is, but he's a, he's a filmmaker. Everybody wants to be in a movie. So this local filmmaker is going to make a movie and everyone wants to be a part of it. You know, it's your chance to be famous. And that was a movie called Wine of the Fawn. We talked a little bit about it last week. We know that it never got made, but this meeting when Savini auditioned for this was the first time that Savini was introduced to Romero. And it's a meeting that Romero would remember a few years later when Savini tried to pitch himself as the makeup artist for Night of the Living Dead. You know, we talked about that last week where he's walking around set uh, showing Romero his portfolio going, I can be the guy who, to do this. And of course, we also know that that partnership never came to be because Savini ended up going to Vietnam.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Romero talks about that movie. He said, I think it was just too caught up in Bergman movies at the time or something. And yeah, uh, he, he it's definitely referred to as Bergman esque. Yeah. He says it was like really high minded, uh, movie about teens in the middle ages. He's like, I don't really know what was going to happen there, but he <laughs> Sounds was like, thrilling. but with Savini audition, he said that Savini was like a good looking guy. Like he was like, he's going to be the lead. Um, You know, they weren't even thinking of him for makeup later. Savini's stint in Vietnam
2: is is sort of a thing of legend, mostly because Savini himself really likes to talk about it in pretty much every interview you see with him. But, I mean, it's with good reason, because he he saw some traumatizing shit. You know, and he often points out that the shit that he saw helped him create some of the most realistic gore effects to ever be put to film because he had the real deal to compare it to. He often will say, You know, I saw this stuff in Vietnam. I saw what a dead body actually looks like. So I can recreate that better than someone who is just imagining.
3: The few stories I've gotten my father to tell me about his time over there are
0: horrifying, in a word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I may have talked about it before, but yeah, he's, he's been on um, like the last drive in a a couple of times, I think now and stuff, but yeah, they, I remember somebody asked him like, what, you know, what, what are some of the tricks? And he's just like, um, I remember his like go-to was like, yeah, well, first thing, nobody's mouth is shut when they're dead. (laughs) Mouth, He's like, Mm -hmm. all your muscle control is gone. So he's like, that's like day one. We're like, nobody's mouth shut when they're dead. Write that down. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, it was just kind of interesting stuff. Morbid, but you know,
2: but interesting, but but it's still an
0: interesting thing.
2: (laughs) So Savini wasn't drafted to Vietnam. Like a lot of people at the time were, he actually enlisted in the army in order to make a little bit of money because he had a pregnant girlfriend and he, and he being a good Catholic boy, thought he should marry her. Uh, so he wanted to make a little bit of money and the only way he could really do that was by enlisting in the army. So, he, he, he knew that by enlisting rather than being drafted that he would have his choice of army schooling. Uh, whereas if you were drafted, you were basically sent right to the infantry. So he chose to go to the army school of photography thinking what the hell would they need photographers for in Vietnam? <laughs> and then of course <laughs> in the next few months, he was called up to go to Vietnam yeah. to be a combat photographer. And this is, and he spent an entire year there.
3: Uh, here's what he would recall about his time uh, over in Vietnam. When I was in Vietnam, I was a combat photographer. My job was to shoot images of damaged machines and people. Through my lens, I saw some hideous stuff. To cope with it, I guess I tried to think of it as special effects. Now as an artist, I just think of creating the effect within the limitations we have to deal with.
0: I'm glad that uh, Tom Savini is still alive. And, and, you know, unfortunately George Romero's passed, so he can't be offended with my impersonation of him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, Oh man. So after his stint in the army, uh, he actually moved to Fayetteville, North Carolina. I think he was stationed there at first, but uh, he, but then when he wrapped things up in the army, he he stayed there, continued to hone his skills as both the makeup effects artist and as an actor. He appeared on stage in a lot of plays and musicals. I mean, this this is like a seven year period of time where he's continuing to act and be on stage. And he would often do the the makeup for these plays and musicals as well. It was during this time that he tells a story in his book, he, he randomly just met a dude in a bar, a guy named Forrest Carpenter, uh, who was an art director. He was an art director on movies, and he had just worked on a film called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, which was one of the first films directed by Bob Clark, who of course would go on to do Black Christmas and, and Porky's and A Christmas Story and all kinds of stuff. But they were, uh, they were actually gearing up to make another movie. These movies are being shot in Florida. Uh, that movie, Bob Clark's next movie, would end up being Tom Savini's very first film, which is a film called Death Dream, and he would—he was not the uh, head of the makeup department, but he assisted the makeup effects supervisor, a guy named Alan Ormsby. And then he would later on, you know, his next movie would be another film with the same crew with Bob Clark and Ormsby called Deranged, and it would be a few years before he got another makeup effects job. And in the interim, he continued to act on stage, uh, returned to Pittsburgh, uh, eventually, and enrolled as a student at Carnegie Mellon. And where he's like 10 years older than every other student there who are all just out of high school, he was in his late 20s. But it was during this time, this stint at Carnegie Mellon, where he finally teamed up with George Romero, when the two in 1976, collaborated on Mark.
0: George Romero tells the story that like, he literally did not remember Savini um, at this point. And that (laughs) he said that Savini literally came off the elevator and what they were in an office building and he was with some other people and they were talking and Savini walked up and pulled out a razor blade and slit his wrist and just started (laughs) gushing blood and did a somersault and like fell on the (laughs) ground. And then looked up and was like, remember me? (laughs) Good <laughs> Romero's like I, I don't. <laughs> that's, but that's and really that, impressive. <laughs> yeah, and and that
2: uh, I've heard that story as well. The, the story I heard was Savini walked into his office to do that. That's a much better version of it. But yeah, he he walked in and cut his wrist, which of course is the first Savini effect that we see in this film. So the first Savini effect in in the first movie that George Romero did with Savini is. A wrist being cut, you know, but but the, the story I heard was that he did it in Ramirez's office, and Christine Forrest was in there with. Him romero and nearly fainted because she just saw a guy burst in the office and slit his wrist yeah that may be accurate I mean, this was from uh, either
0: del toro and romero yeah. story romero's telling the story and says he like just walked in cut his wrist and did a somersault and he's like, hey remember me the,
2: the somersault is what what does it for me <laughs>
0: well and it helps because in, in martin uh savini does a lot of the stunts as well yeah like, he does yeah so i guess he's he's just showing like I'm multi-talented. Yes, <laughs> I can act. I can, do, I can fall downstairs.
2: I can s- slit my wrists. Yeah. <laughs> right. so, but he, he did not initially try to come on as the creator of the film's effects. He actually uh, initially wanted to be an actor in the film. He, he approached Romero about auditioning for the lead role, only to find out that John Amplis had already been cast. So instead, he got the opportunity, of course, as we know, to do the film's makeup effects. He did get cast in the film, But obviously not as Martin. He plays a very, pretty small role as Arthur. I, I mean, an important role, I would say, yeah. but a pretty small role. So we, we do get to see him in the film. But yes, as Gary said, he did perform a lot of the stunts in the film as well, which I didn't realize that Savini was a stuntman until I started researching this. But apparently, that's not, this is not the first time he's done the. He's done a lot of uh, stunts, especially like motorcycle work and stuff, because he's a big motorcycle guy, as we'll see in, in next week's film. Yeah, uh, I not
0: like him and Kane Hodder were like really close buds? I just assumed just because of the horror background but like seeing each other at horror conventions right stuff. but they're, no. they're apparently both like into lifting weights and getting themselves wrecked on movie sets so i don't know <laughs> just, just getting fucked up
2: on movie sets oh man so i don't know martin, martin never received the the like following of some of Romero's better known films is, you know, namely his zombie movies. I mean, I kind of understand that to an extent because this is essentially an art house take on, on the vampire tale. The kind of thing that wasn't really made in the seventies, at least not in America. Although I could see this coming out now and probably have an A24 logo. I was
0: literally about to <laughs> yeah. say that. A24 made a vampire movie.
2: And I, I feel like based on y'all's previous contents were comments that we are going to disagree on this, but I, I really think this is a, an excellent movie. I, I watched it twice this week, actually, because I wanted to, to absorb it a little bit better because I'd never seen Martin before, before we did this uh, series. So I wanted to, to absorb it a little bit more by watching it twice I watched it again last night. I understand why it's, it's not as fun as some of Romero's other stuff. Obviously, Dawn of the Dead is a cartoon at times, but even Dawn of the Dead, which you has a pie fight in it, you know, some silly stuff. It's also filled with an kind of insurmountable dread. That's something that is actually a through line through a lot of George Romero's filmography. It's as fun as we, you know, think of Dawn, like Day of the Dead is a fucking bummer of a movie. You know, Night of the Living Dead is for a good portion of its runtime. We think of the fun stuff, but there's a lot of pathos throughout Romero's filmography. And this movie that insurmountable dread like permeates every frame. This is not a fun movie. It is s- sad. It's a sad yeah. movie about yeah. a sad man.
0: Well, it's, it's sad, especially because like it, it it's real. And, um, that's, that's the, that's the really big bummer of the whole thing is like, you know, I think when you, when you see Romero talk about the movie to him, I don't think he ever looked at Martin as this is a kid that really is a vampire. I think he leaves so like, he, he, he says
2: on, on the DVD commentary for this, I uh, actually have the quote. He says, I don't think he's a vampire. I just think he's messed up.
3: So I, I think in terms of the realism and uh, terror and um, just uneasy feelings in this um, movie are really uh, perfectly personified in uh, trying to get get someone to hang up the goddamn phone dude like, that scene that, that scene went on for fucking ever are you it's kidding like, that oh my god that's <laughs> no. wait 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 what wait, are you wait. Doing? that's the best scene in the movie
2: oh my god that whole sequence are you kidding me you don't like that sequence the no. the cat and mouse
3: of that sequence no. god, damn
2: it. god you're fired from the show yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though
3: i know <laughs> My foot's on it. No, no, hang up. What's the number? No, hang up.
2: No, oh, my God. My
3: uh, my foot? No, it's, wait, the number. Is there another phone? Is there another phone in the house? Yeah, there's another phone in the house. Okay, well, hang up.
2: That's, the thing or is, <laughs> so
3: entire,
2: and that entire sequence, that, that's the that's the movie's big set piece where, Martin comes to the home of an intended victim and things get complicated because he wasn't expecting her to be cheating on her husband. Uh, the way that Romero shoots that scene, the way that he edits that scene is masterful because it, it is incredibly choreographed that entire sequence. It's unnerving and suspenseful, but it's also very funny uh, until it's not funny anymore and, and shit gets real. That's, that's what's so good about that sequence is that Romero makes the audience run the gamut of emotions because the scene like that you're talking about with the phone is very funny, but it's intentionally. So (laughs) Romero's catching you off guard by then making it go like shit gets really real towards the end of that scene. And the whole sequence is one of the best edited sequences in a a Romero film that I've seen.
0: You know, what's funny is like, there's nothing about this movie that I think I, I watch and I think like Romero's not a good filmmaker. Like, I think it's, a well put together movie. I think it it, it moves like, uh, God help me, my wife says this all the time. She's like, you're slow as molasses in winter. I always thought that was the dumbest phrase, but that's that's accurate here. Like, I feel like this movie is just really slow. Um, There's a lot of things I like.
2: It's a drama. It's not an action movie. He's not trying to make an action movie.
0: Yeah, I just mean I can't even imagine that he had like two and a half hours out of this. Like, I mean, I can't imagine because part of the one of the things about this movie is that that makes it so damn depressing is that it's it's like real life. Like, oh, I'm literally spending three hours in this dude's life or something. I mean, I know you're spending it over time, but there's cool parts, right? Like, so I'm torn because there's stuff I really dig. I, and I've seen stuff with Romero that he was thinking about all the weird shit that a lot of people bring up when you start thinking about vampire stuff. Um, as far as he wanted to see, like, was, is there something like, what would it be like to be a modern vampire? And then thinking about like, oh man, you know, there's like weird monotonous things you would have to do. Like, you got to get your license renewed. Like, over and over again for 90 years. <laughs> like, you know, like there's he's like he's like that's where it started is like you're just like the mundane part of being a vampire, like the the weird stuff you'd have to deal with. And so I I feel like he's he's he you know, he's still trying to capture this although he ends up going into this territory of like this kids like to me you can obviously watch it and the, the kids obviously some mentally disturbed kid. And it's based on his environment. Uh, he's in a society that's crumbling. Things are crumbling all around him and he just so happens to have a great uncle who's a relic from the past. He's like also helping feed his, uh, weird hallucinations that he's a vampire. And so they, they roll with it. Although I will say, by the way, that I do feel like there's breadcrumbs in there somewhere. Like if you really want to play with it, there's the stuff about like, go look in the photo albums, you know, or whatever. And well, that,
2: that, that's the thing is that Romero, despite what he says in, in like that DVD commentary, he makes it, the, the, he puts things in the film that would make, that would give you evidence both ways, whether, whether Martin's actually a, a vampire or whether he's delusional. And I think that's really funny because Romero has often kind of hesitated to give meaning to his films. He'd rather the audience figure it out for themselves. He doesn't really, you know, you can, you can uh, attest, a, put a lot of uh, social commentary attached to his films as we talk about a lot with his movies, but he never really talks about that. Uh, which I, which I like. I like that he allows the audience to figure it out. He he's seems to be intentionally doing that with this movie. Like, giving you clues that yes martin could actually be a vampire or he could actually just be a messed up kid you know and and what one thing i think that he does that's so impressive is that he somehow he somehow manages to get the audience to to empathize with martin uh you, you, without ever really being on his side he is very he's despicable he's a horrible human whether he's a vampire or not he's a horrible human but and I think a lot of that also. I mean, Romero gets a lot of credit, but I think John Amplis get, should get a lot of credit for that as well, because I think he plays the role very well. But a lot of you know, a lot of the movie does hinge on that question: Is Martin a vampire or not? It, maybe he's feeding in the to the delusions of Tatekuda, his cousin, his old ass cousin. Regardless, if he's not a vampire, then he's just a rapist and serial killer. And this is something that Romero establishes in the very first scene in the movie where he murders a woman, you know, he he pre premeditatively, you know, he fills a syringe, he's on the hunt and he murders a woman in cold blood on a train. So even if he's not, if he's not a vampire, then he's just a fucked up serial killer. You know, what, what she call a freak rapist asshole,
0: you know? <laughs> well, it's funny. Like yeah, we were, um, I mean, that's not funny, but the, <laughs> we were, we were talking, uh, like during the movie the wife and i like where later on she was like oh is his i guess it's his cousin not his uncle but she's like his cousin's so mean to him and it's just like, what if he's not you know he might not really be a vampire and i'm like yeah but he's still definitely like we definitely saw him murder a lady at the beginning yeah. of this movie like yeah he's still and he drank he's still her not blood.
2: <laughs> he's still not sympathetic yet you empathize with him because mostly because of Ample's performance, because he plays him as a sad, lonely dude who seems to be like, you know, like when he kills that woman at the beginning, which is a great sequence, a very unnerving sequence. And, and another, I think, instance that proves how good of an editor George Romero is in that sequence. Because you have to remember, Romero cut his teeth editing 30-second commercials where he had to tell a whole story in 30 seconds. So he got very, very good at it. But in that scene, you know, when he's killing the woman, he's even you know he's cradling her like a child you know as as she's passing out he's saying you know i don't want to i don't want to hurt you i always prepare the needles well like he's he he's taking care it, almost like he doesn't want to do this but he has to do this uh which which helps the audience to sympathize with him and again not be on his side but understand that he is a a somewhat sympathetic character despite how fucked up he is
0: yeah, it's weird. Um, I'm, I'm glad you went back to John Amplis because, I mean, I think he is what makes anything work. I mean, obviously Romero's part in it and th- there's everybody involved. I, okay, so there's the crew. But John Amplis, like, I, I can't... <laughs> the pick- entire
2: cast and crew, yes. Let's not forget them.
0: Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I can't imagine anybody else but John Amplis in the role. Like, he he just has this weird innocence about his face and, like... Mm-hmm. Um, he does have a just a, a unique look that like there's something about Martin being like a younger looking guy. Yeah, and Amplest
2: was like 27 when he when he made this, but he's playing either an 84 year old or a 19 year old, depending on who you yeah, believe, depending but. on what you buy into. <laughs>
0: and it's weird because I don't, I don't know this guy. I don't know Amplest at all. Um, and uh, and just, I don't just mean personally. I mean I just don't know him from movies. Really, I he mean, doesn't I've seen, do.
2: He hasn't done much. He's, he's done some other stuff in Romero movies. He'll appear in, at the opening sequence of Dawn of the Dead, which we'll talk about next week, as a Puerto Rican with like a Che Guevara uh, mustache and, and brown face. <laughs> but, and then he plays uh, he plays like a, I think one of the scientists maybe in Day of the Dead. Yeah, I think he's met for he, Day. He plays uh, in uh, Creepshow, Father, the Father's Day sequence. He's the father that coming out of the grave. Oh no, nice. obviously you can't see his face, but
0: that's him. Oh but weird. yeah,
2: but he mostly did stayed in Pittsburgh doing uh, plays and teaching acting.
0: Which is so crazy because I read about around about the time I can't I can't remember if it was like right before or right after, whenever it would have been, he had he traveled to Rome to audition for Argento in Suspiria. Hmm. And he oh, did really? Yeah, and he didn't he like he ended up like close but didn't get the part. And I'm going to wonder back, what role. Yeah, I, I don't know. Is he? But uh, I just remember reading that somewhere that he had, he had auditioned there. But it's just uh, it's just weird. And then now, yeah, like he just he's kind of been quiet.
2: Well, I mean, I think that that may be a personal choice though, too, as well. I'm not sure why, because I think he's actually very good in this. Uh, I, I think another thing that Romero does that, that was a great choice is those black and white scenes, like juxtaposing those end of the film because it kind of feeds into that question of whether or not Martin is, is a vampire or not, because those scenes could be his fantasies, you know, or they could be memories from years and years ago because he's, you know, supposedly old. Well, yeah. I think they
3: play into that, like in that very first scene, because he's imagining her on the bed, welcoming him. Right. And then... I, it doesn't turn out to be that
2: <laughs> no she's like taking a shit
3: yeah, and,
2: yeah. <laughs> and then comes out with you know her face uh ma- ma- mask on and and, and there. of
0: course to his delusion like he would he would definitely like picture it like an old vampire movie or something like where she's opening like she's like a bride of dracula and you know right yeah. and it'd be black and white and it's like you know that whole thing so yeah it makes it makes sense
2: so as, as Romero often does you know, in his movies, he does inject a healthy dose of social commentary into this movie as well. Uh, in this case, it's sort of a depiction of that suburban town, Braddock, Pennsylvania, in this case, that seems to be in like an economic depression. Every, it's a shitty town. Like everything is falling apart and decaying. Yeah. And uh, it, it's filled with residents who want to get out. Like you've got Christina, which is uh, we mentioned before is played by Christine Forrest, Ramirez' future wife, she talks about wanting to get away. She she so much that she's willing to go with her boyfriend Arthur, which is the the role that Tom Savini plays, who is wanting to leave to look for better work that pays better. And she even says like I'm going to leave with Arthur, and we're not going to end up together. He's just my way out of the shithole of a town. Like Mm -hmm. that's how desperate she is to get away from this place. And and Martin, you know, even he seems like he's this kid. You know, we've all known this kid or been this kid. Like this kid, nineteen years old, and does not know. He has no direction in life. Like he's just wandering from one town to the next, no real family. You know, it's, it's an image that we've all seen or a person that we've all known.
0: I thought we were going to uh, talk about like injecting women and no, bleeding them. That That's I
2: don't know. I don't know anyone that to my knowledge has done that.
0: I haven't okay.
3: done that in years. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, I got to ask. So what do you got? I mean, Gary, I think you may have already t- said what you think. But based on the film, like as you were watching it, before doing any research or anything about what Romero thinks, did you view the movie as, this is a question for both of you guys, did you view the movie as Martin being a vampire or Martin thinking he was a vampire?
0: I just thought thought it was like uh, George Romero trying to take a a new approach to the vampire mythos. Like I I didn't. um, But do you see Martin as a, a creature of magic? No, no, I don't. I, I I think he was a messed up kid, and I I feel like the movie, I, I I can tell that he's trying to give you both sides of the story, but for the most part, I felt like it feels pretty obvious that like yeah, this is a kid who's just in a in an environment that he's like believing in fantasy of something else, and like he he's obviously got some other sort of psychotic break that's happening within him, but he's. Combining it with this fantasy of being a horror movie villain or something, you know like he he 's the vampire, and so he believes this now i mean there there's cool stuff in it don 't get me wrong. I mean, what I like about it is that Romero talks about that during this time, or maybe it wasn 't even Romero, but i was I was thinking about this like hammer movies had come along, you know you 'd have the universal monsters and hammer movies like do vampires but vampires had almost become like a little bit of a joke like it become a little more silly around this time and so it's it is it is a little sad that martin doesn't get more credit because there's been a lot of iterations of like what the vampire story is uh now but this is not normally considered part of that discussion and it it probably should be because george romero saw like a different version of this tale he was doing a different version of
2: the vampire before like lost boys and near dark and stuff like that came along exactly
0: yeah he was trying to tell like a different version of this story and and you can still i mean the arguments there on whether or not he was a vampire but i i kind of still looked at it like is this and especially when you get quotes like you you said earlier where romero's telling like you know like they're all just like parts of ourselves or whatever you know he said it better than i did but it's an interesting story where this kid believes he's a vampire and his family sort of believes it or he's, he's stuck in this position where like some of his family believes it and he's keeps saying that there's no magic, but he's talking. Yeah, to, magic
2: isn't real. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But he, I mean, he's talking to this radio host. Like he's reaching out to like this radio host all the time and talking to him about it. And uh, I don't know. I, it's, I, I'm going a long way to, to answer your question. No, I don't believe he's a vampire. I do believe that you could make the argument otherwise. And at the end, he gets killed with a stake through the heart. But does enough, he get murdered or does he get destroyed? Saying, which, yeah. oddly enough, would kill anybody, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so, so Todd, not really an answer.
2: <laughs> as you were watching the movie, did you see him as a, a true vampire or or did you see him as a delusional kid?
3: I saw him as a, a fairly well-practiced serial killer. Like he had, Like, he had... He had the uh, the steps and the plan, and, and he talks about well. like
2: he talks in that that first scene about perfecting the what was it the injection? Yeah,
3: yeah. So I, if there was supposed to be a confusion or a discussion about is he or isn't he, I don't think the film properly instilled that within me. I I saw him as a serial killer with vampire leanings but i there was never well and i think that's the thing is like all of this sort of leads to him ironically being staked which gary said would kill anybody but at at the point where at the point where he sort of abandons killing and the vampire thing and falls in love the lady kills herself he gets blamed for it and staked, and I think that's the that's what we're watching. We're watching this this ironic uh, downward progression. You know, there's there's a little bit of redemption of like, hey, this weird kid found love, and now and like maybe maybe this is what he needed to become, you know, a real a real live boy, um, <laughs> but ironically. It ended up being his uh being his downfall because he was falsely accused and then and then staked. That's the, on paper, this looks like a really great little um a really great uh cautionary tale about, you know, your your, your, don't, your don't, well, don't murder <laughs> women. Yes. Yeah, yeah, don't <laughs> don't murder women cause you'll get <laughs> accused and staked. No, but it's sort of like it, it's a cautionary tale about the actions you have have on uh whether you intend them or not even even after you correct your you know turn from your evil ways uh there are still consequences to be had now there, how how well was that message conveyed in the film eh, I, I, don't
0: know. I, I I just think um part of the interesting part of it is, is like you're watching it and then it's like. Uh, if you look at at Martin and then uh what's his name Kuda is that his name Kuda. yeah Tata-cuda. Um that he, you're like one of these guys is real fucking crazy. Turns out mm-hmm. both are crazy. Both <laughs> are <real> fucking crazy. <laughs> uh,
2: I, I I'm kind of I, I lean I mean I think he is just a mentally unstable kid, which is what what I later found out is what Romero thought as well. And I think that he's a, a kid who was probably already mentally unstable, who has been further corrupted by his family's extreme superstitious beliefs. None of us that live in the Bible belt can possibly relate to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I believe that he thinks he's a vampire. That's the thing. I believe that he truly believes that he's a vampire, but he is actually just as human as you you or me. And I do think that that could also be another bit of social commentary that, that Romero is trying to put into the film. This, this idea that there's a harmful impact of like these psychological and emotional scars that our families can inflict upon us. You know, things that you don't realize when you're a kid that when you later find out like, oh, that was fucked up and you're still dealing with that. Yeah. baggage you know and oh, that's yeah. basically because that's basically what's happening to him he may have already had some uh, mental issues some that, that he was more predisposed to this but by a family constantly telling you this is what you are that's what you're going to become
3: yeah.
2: and that's what I think that's part of what Romero is trying to say here
3: it, it and was, it, for Martin it was either this or I don't know get into stand-up comedy <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man which I, is I just worse, say What's like, worse? I have
0: had my like my worldview blown that I used to pick on one of the things I used to pick on Twilight, and there's plenty, but one of the things I used to pick on Twilight for is like the idea that these are oh, these are vampires, the daylight doesn't really affect them, they just sparkle, and I'm like. Now I look back on them, I'm like, well, at least they sparkle. Like that's something that at least adheres to. I used to think there were like unwritten rules that you, you, couldn't, you couldn't screw with in vampires. And now I've seen Martin. And the other day I watched, uh, well, spoiler alert, everybody. I'm going to mention a movie here called Let's Scare Jessica to Death. But I watched that the other day. And, and both those movies are, there's some vampire stuff going on. And daylight does not matter. And uh, so it's just, I don't know. It's just interesting.
2: I think one thing that, I think the ambiguity of whether Martin's a vampire or not is actually very important to to the overall impact of the film. Because I do think that if we like knew, like in in Romero's original version, if we knew that Martin was a vampire, then he sort of becomes an object of myth. He's no longer just like a dude. And I think that sort of allows the audience to forgive his crimes, uh, I think that allows the audience to think, oh, he, you know, that's just what vampires do. Right. Uh, that's not just what people do or not what people should be doing. It's murdering each How other. How jacked
0: up is it though that you feel like when set or whatever her name is, I'm sorry. Um, but she kills her. His milf. His milf. she yeah. Kills herself.
2: She's not a milf cause she talks about not being able to have children. But
0: Good point. Know. Um, She's just a hot mom. I'm not even going mean, to try to work out the acronym for whatever that would be. But the, um, <laughs> you know, she kills herself and you kind of feel bad for him. And then you're like, also like, well, he would have probably done that eventually. Like, I'm guessing. The thing is, he, he
2: never seems to like see her as a victim. Same with like his cousin, Christine. He never sees her as a victim. It doesn't seem like yeah,
0: that's a good point. other
2: women in his life. Well,
3: He, he identifies with her. Uh, she's, she's. Uh, dealing with a not exactly the same type of loneliness, but a very similar, very just, she's not a great just,
2: relationship.
3: Just as strong type of loneliness as he is.
2: Yeah, yeah, and she she wants to get out of this life and and find something better as well. I mean, right, right. So it, Michael Weldon, you you guys heard of that Michael Weldon? Do you know who that is? The, mm. the writer of the Psychotronic
0: Psych podcast film. one time talking about him.
2: It was pretty good. I don't know what happened to it, but he in his Personally
3: review,
0: he's a
2: <laughs> in his review in the Encyclopedia, the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film, he called the film he called Martin there's a quote too disturbing, bleak, and personal to have been a financial hit even at midnight showings. And uh, he was right; it, did, it wasn't did not make a lot of money. It received a very limited limited release on May tenth, nineteen seventy eight, and uh, it it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination a financial success, although it has gone on to be revered by horror fans over the years and, and as sort of one of Romero's unsung masterpieces. Uh, despite what you guys think, a lot of people in the horror community absolutely love this movie. And Romero himself has called it his favorite movie he ever did. Mm, and he said all, he did all I've said, all said about
0: this bottom. movie thus far is that it felt like three hours. And I stand by that. This movie That is-, is an insult. This movie, well, it it did. This movie is very slow. And if you want, like, here's the thing. If we're talking about movies and we're going to sit here and try to, like, pretend all day long, like, this is a great horror movie. Well, that depends on what you're looking for out of the horror movie. Well, I
2: I think it's a... I think it I think this is a character drama with horror elements
0: to it. Yeah, this honestly. is not if you, if you like watch a, it
2: as a horror movie, like is this gonna scare me? This is not that kind of movie.
0: This is not a standard vampire movie. This is right. a drawn out like character drama, like Justin just said. That's what this movie is. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just mean it's slow. If if, like it's a drawn out, like slowly paced movie, intentionally so. It's like, kinda yeah.
3: it's kind of like kind of like Joker. It's a character study. It's not a superhero movie.
0: Okay. I mean, I I, I see where I you're, see going, where you're with going with that.
3: Yeah, Just like, as a comparison for someone who, you know, is look. It's, it's a 70s, you know, think think 70s Joker, but instead of Joker, it's vampires.
0: It's a yeah, character. Yeah, and especially if you're stuff. living in a world where you know George Romero as the living dead guy. Like this is, this is a more thoughtful piece than you might be expecting. Like, I mean, I think there's some cool performances in it. I think that, that the story is interesting. And it's interesting that in 1977, a movie came out that tackled uh, the vampire mythos with like a lot of uh, interesting perspective. Um, It, it, It does have all of that. Um, I I just, I mean, I do, I'm not going to take it back. I I think it's slow. I don't think it's bad. It's really well done. Saying I think it's slow to, I mean, you you
2: didn't say you thought it was intentionally slow. I think it's methodic. I I think it's intentionally paced. To me, when somebody says something is slow, the movie is slow, that's them saying the movie is boring.
0: Yeah. And
2: that's not necessarily would always you, the same thing. I
0: guess I would establish that that it is that way just because I think that if you go into this movie with the expectation that you're watching a horror movie or the expectation that you're at least even watching a Night of the Living Dead style movie or Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead or whatever, like that could lead to disappointment. This is not that same kind of movie. Um, this is a that i mean and 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 especially if you see like george romero and tom savini are in it i mean the gore is pretty limited in this movie like it's oh
2: it is i mean you've got you've got that opening like the slit wrist you've got of course the guy in the uh the house getting like stabbed in his neck or chest and
0: the end where Martin. there's the ending but yeah i mean all in all like i mean this is pretty tame it, it, yeah, I mean, from
2: a horror—if if you're watching this as a traditional horror movie—I could totally see that. But that's not what Romero was trying to do. You got to remember, like Romero did not intend to be a horror movie director. He made a horror movie because he knew it would make money, and he essentially got kind of pigeonholed in that for the rest of his career, uh, which he never really wanted to do. I mean, we hear that story a lot. Even Wes Craven tried to get out of it for a little bit, but. Romero, and even in this movie like he he loves horror movies, he grew up loving horror movies, but he's taking those elements of those horror movies and putting them into a character drama, which is what what this is It's what season of the witch is his previous movie It's not a horror movie despite there being witchcraft in it, not remotely a horror movie. he's just taking horror element horror elements and injecting them into a a drama
0: yeah, I just feel like a lot of audience i mean despite the fact that like some people could be super smart and super artsy and then they like we'll just immediately like get it. Like I, I granted, I, I probably did for like a movie like Midsummer for example, like Midsummer I felt it like immediately. I was like, this movie works for me. But it's like, if if you settle down, and you're like, I need to watch a good like scary horror movie. And you pick Martin, you're like, Romero Savini vampire, like this is gonna be great. You're going to be, I, I feel like uh, a lot of seven out of 10 times, people are going to be like, huh, that is, that is not what I expected. out of." Five. Yeah, but that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't
2: mean it's bad. That no, mean I, I'm just saying, I
0: mean, that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means like, I, I think that, that, that people have to have the proper expectation that that yeah, can yeah, impact I, their I, view of the film.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So, We've mentioned Savini here in the last few minutes more, more and and I guess you could say that the most significant thing to come out of this movie was that partnership with Tom Savini and George Romero because, and we'll explore this. We're going to be spending the next several weeks exploring this and because that is a partnership that grew from this film that would span decades and give us some of the best horror movies ever made. Uh, but there was actually one other connection a very important one that was made with this film. And that was George Romero's working relationship with Dario Argento. Because Argento, as he would often do with American-made horror movies, is he bought the rights to Martin to distribute the film in Europe. And his agreement, as it often would be, would be that he would have the ability to re-edit the film for the European market and, of course, have the Italian prog rock band Goblin provide the score for the film. And that was released in Europe under the name Wampir. And to this day, it's, you can't find it. It's never been released in America that I could find. Uh, to this day, you can only find an Italian dubbed version of that if you like import it from Europe. Uh, so I've never seen it, unfortunately. I would, I would like to, although I, I have heard from people who have seen it that the Argento version is inferior because, of like we said, the, one of the big, to me, one of the big strengths of this film is how well Romero edits it and by Argento re-editing it like it's a gialli or something uh it kind of takes away a lot of the the melancholy I mean adding a goblin score automatically is going to make it less melancholy
0: I was just picturing it like all of like the subtle seeds or like even the like serious discussions or anything and like uh you want me for the sex don't you then you just wow, hear wow. da <unsvene> <makinglingt> <speaking> <laughs> <speaking> I mean I want to see it, but I, I can't imagine
2: it would be the same film by any stretch of the imagination. But that, that partnership with Romero is something that would benefit Romero's next film because Romero and and Argento made a very similar deal with that film which is that Romero, or excuse me, Argento would have the ability to re-edit the film and have Goblin do a score to it. And in exchange, Argento would provide a bunch of money to help him get the film made. And in fact, it was Argento's money. The Italian money was some of the first money that they raised for that film. That film, of course, the one that we're going to be talking about next week, the second film in George Romero's zombie saga, 1978's Dawn of the Dead. But I'm pretty excited to talk about it.
0: God I'm you guys are as well. And it turns out it's super easy to find. <laughs> hey, maybe not.
2: Uh depends gonna, on when you're depends on when you're listening to this episode. I was
0: you say, could be listening
3: to this from years. So what uh what cut what uh what version are we watching? I, uh, I'm going to say,
2: I'm going to say the theatrical the cut,
3: although I know, no, no.
2: <laughs> I mean, I like the remake, but no. So I, I'm going to say the theatrical cut just for ease. Although I, I may watch the Argento cut as well. Cause I like that version too. And I, I've got both. So I'm, you know, if I have time, I might watch them both, but uh, yeah, I would say the original theatrical cut probably, but uh, yeah, the movie as of this recording is not very, Easy to find, but we always put a link in our uh, on our website where you can find all the show notes on this episode on our website, cinemashock.net. We have a new website. Well, we have a website. We didn't have one last week. We recorded, but well, we do now. Cinemashock.net. We'll have a little link to justwatch.com, uh, the profile for Dawn of the Dead. So maybe if you're listening to this down the line, uh it is available streaming somewhere as of right now it's not but it's a goddamn
0: shame it's not it's really weird isn't it? yeah
2: it's really weird. weird and the dvd and blu-rays are, are like out of print so it's very very hard to find right now
3: that's that's what i was gonna go do is just like well i'll just use this as an excuse to go buy it on blu-ray but nope you won't i mean you can you're gonna Damn. spend some money on it yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, you really just go with the DVD, the regular DVD, right now on Amazon. Or, um, I mean, you know, we hate doing this, but but YouTube's your friend too. Uh,
2: we're not going to promote piracy on our podcast here.
0: I'm just saying, eh, Google some stuff sometimes. As a as a <laughs> as
2: a supporter of independent filmmakers. I am not. Do you going honestly to...
0: think George Ray, uh, George, the George Romero Foundation, has anything to do with anything going on on Amazon right now, where a copy of Dawn of the Dead is like 180 bucks if you want to buy like the special edition Blu-ray?
2: If somebody's listening to this in a year and the Blu-ray's out, I'm not going to promote piracy.
0: Well, I hope they've done their job and they got it mm-hmm. off YouTube. Cause it's there right now. I'm not gonna promote it. I'm just saying you could, and you don't, you shouldn't, because you should buy the, the Blu-ray.
3: Look, thanks, Gary. Go, go watch it on YouTube, <laughs> and then donate some money to the George Romero Foundation. Or... Yeah, the, you can is, do is it. there George actual... A Romero
0: Foundation? Yeah, we're yeah. following them on Insta, on on Twitter. Uh, I've been I've been interacting Look, with them. You you, can see you them. know. You can
3: see them you know how much you're willing to spend on a copy of the original Dawn of the Dead. Go watch it on YouTube and then donate that money to the George A. Romero Foundation.
0: That is an idea that you could consider. Justin wants no part of any of this. No, he doesn't. I I specifically told you don't watch it on YouTube. Don't watch it on YouTube because it's free and right there. So do not do that. You want to buy the movie. Go spend $180 on Amazon right now and buy it. Whatever Blu-ray they got, it's only seventy-five dollars. I'm sure that George <laughs> oh, Romero's oh poor wife oh gets my. all one hundred eighty dollars no, like when he do it.
2: There are used versions of it for like eight nine dollars on on Amazon.
0: All right,
2: the Blu-ray? Yeah.
0: No, the DVD. I was about to say the DVD you can get if you want the Blu-ray. It's like stupid money.
2: Yeah, the DVD is like nine. You can get it for like nine dollars. So just go buy that just to do that.
0: do that glad we all had this discussion
2: anyway that's what we got about martin that's that's it this is the, that
0: was our episode on martin thank you for joining us todd i'm really disappointed I'm, in all of us for not having fake vampire teeth in the whole time
2: oh man that's a fun scene in this movie honestly uh where martin pretends to be a vampire just to fuck with his uncle or his cousin right Puts on the cape and the the fangs and it's fun fun shit <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, Todd hated this movie. Can you tell how much Todd hated this movie? <laughs>
0: yeah. Well I was really
3: I mean, real really, I really do want to be positive. It's and I feel like I feel like on paper the idea is great. But if they remade crazies, I think I think this deserves I think this deserves a modern telling. Like tighten up, tighten up the script a little bit, get some people who are actors. Not just people who own the house to play these roles. And- John Amplis is great. Christine Forrest is great. Tatakude is great.
0: They're yeah. fun. I'm going to fall in the middle. A, I'll be I'll be the middleman here and say that <laughs> I could definitely see a way that like a Bloomhouse could put this thing together. Oh yeah, I'm make, not saying that a remake couldn't be good. I'm just saying that I have no no really, issue with
2: the performances in this film.
0: No, I mean, I like I said, I can't imagine John Amplis, other uh, anybody other than that doing the the role, but. I mean you really heighten that like come, uh come on, confusion on getting- uh, whether or not he is or isn't like I mean there could there could be some fun there.
3: Gary you could you can think of a couple people that could probably do just as good if not better than Amphus mm. in a in a modern retelling. Mm. He's good he's good
2: in this and todd i I, I have a feeling todd is not going to like a lot of the movies
3: we're going to be covering
2: on this podcast
3: i keep waiting for you to to have the thing of like todd hates horror. like when are we going to do that series that's this whole podcast now (laughs) that's exactly what we're
0: doing
3: (laughs) that's this entire entire podcast now it's Cinema, cinema shocker my ass like just
0: call it Todd Hates Horror. Oh, we'll send the shocker that ass.
2: They're
3: not all horror movies. You're gonna
2: hate you're gonna hate uh Westerns. You're gonna hate <laughs> Kung Fu movies.
0: Uh it's just Todd hates movies. Todd hates movies. <laughs> uh that is what this podcast <laughs> Todd hates is. movies that aren't the ninja turtles.
2: Yeah, you but just wait like Todd. I, I think Todd's gonna like Dawn of the Dead. Because everyone likes so, Dawn of the Dead. I've
3: seen Dawn of the Dead. I love Dawn of the
0: Dead. Okay. We'll see. I not still the Zack like Snyder one. one like, the George Amaro one. one.
3: I know. The 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 original. The original. Uh, uh, Todd is not. I'm going to go ahead and predict. In two
2: weeks, we're going to be talking about a film called Effects. Todd is not going to like that movie. That movie cost $16 to make. <laughs> <laughs> Todd is a <laughs> film of amateurs. Todd is not
0: going to like it. Oh, God. That's
2: my prediction. Let's see where we land in two weeks. All right, let's He's going to like it
0: on purpose now.
2: (laughs) That should should be our – Gary, what we're going to do going forward, me and Gary are going to have – Private conversations
0: without Todd. Oh my God! It will do like private bets on if Todd and we're will We're going. We're
2: we're going to write it down on a piece of paper and fold it, and not unfold it until we're doing the episode of Yes or No.
0: Will Todd like this movie? I like this. And unveil it during the something. episode
2: to see if we were
0: right at the <laughs> end. Really when Todd weak. gives his opinion, we have to like unfold it, it's like the dating game. <laughs> nope. Did it's Todd got, like it's- this movie?
3: It's got to be, it's got to be in the envelope and you have to do it all. So no, nothing, nothing below the camera. It's all going to be on yeah. camera. <laughs> <Still>. yeah,
0: <we're laughs> anyway, uh, Gary, you want to tell people where you can be found on the internet? I am at, this is Gary Horn.
2: I'm Justin underscore Bishop everywhere. Mr. Todd A. Davis. On Facebook, Twitter,
3: Instagram. Letterboxed. Letterboxed. Still using it? Yeah. And uh, D&D Beyond. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> I don't know what that What's, is. What
3: was that? D and D beyond.
0: It's is that a Dungeons and Dragons thing?
3: It is. Is it like <laughs>
0: online Dungeons and Dragons? Yes. I mean, that feel. I feel like that should be invented by now, but yeah. it, apparently it is. It's D and D beyond. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Todd A. Davis, follow him, I guess. I don't <laughs> know if do you follow people. I Go find I him, think go start so. a uh, yeah. quest or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> yeah, of course.
2: <laughs> uh, find the podcast everywhere. Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can find links to all those on our website or probably in the show description uh wherever you're listening to this podcast right now.
0: And until next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather.
2: Be excellent to each other. Oh, did you see the new Bill and Ted? Hell yeah, I did.
3: Oh, have you seen it, Todd? The trailer? No, the movie, the fucking movie. It's, it's
0: out? I thought yeah, it was on out Friday. Yet. Well, as yeah, Friday. recording this, it came out on Friday. I Friday haven't, the uh 29th. Yes, 29th, I think
3: I'm not going to the theater just 29th. yet. But I'm not in the
0: theater. It's video on demand, Todd. None of us Todd, went to the theater. We're all in the What planet do of you Burke live Sanctatic. on? What planet do you live on, Todd? <laughs>
2: no, VOD VOD twenty four ninety nine, and you own the movie. Oh no, no, <laughs> no!
3: It's I'll, worth. I'll wait. It's worth every penny. I'm. Oh, I'm sure. Or if you 24. have a nice friend who's willing
0: to <laughs> loan it to you, then there you go. Twenty four
3: ninety nine,
2: worth every penny. It's a. D- It is a
0: goddamn delight.
2: It is is the... the, I think,
0: think honestly... It it is the shot of joy that we all
2: need in
3: 2020 right
0: now. (laughs) It is very joyful. It's very positive and feel good.
3: I'm I'm down to see it, but uh, I've got some stuff to do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing nothing more important. Todd, do you have a closing quote so we can end this episode and not bring anybody down?
3: Yeah, Johnny has the keys. Wait, you can't do that every week. Sure can. I sure can, motherfucker.
0: Oh, God. (laughs) How's that for a slice of fried gold? Wait here.
1: I guess everyone's a Title one good scare. Huh?